You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. To Paul's letter to the Philippians. Philippians chapter 4, be reading verses 10 through 23. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica... You sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, have mercy on our souls for our lack of contentment, for our covetousness, for our failure to rejoice in you because of our longing after idols that don't satisfy. Remind us of the treasury of Christ from which you supply every grace to be strengthened in every circumstance so that Christ may be rejoiced in always. In the strong name of Jesus we ask this. Amen. Here at the end we see what began this letter, and just the sheer fact of that, seeing at the end what began this letter, reminds us of what is one of the most fundamental principles in understanding the Scriptures. And it's this, that in order to read the Bible, you have to read your Bible. In order to get this letter, you have to read it once to really read it once, (laughs) You have to read it twice in order just to read it once. 
you have to be pulled out of your world and into their world so that you're reading it the first time with your own eyes so that you might read it a second time with their eyes in order to see what the Holy Spirit is saying to you by this letter, you need to be pulled into what Paul was saying to the Philippians in this letter. Saints, this is the most simple and basic principle of Bible study. It's not complex. You can do it. You can study your Bible. And the principle is simply this. Pick a book of the Bible. Read it. And read it again. And read it again, and begin to read itself in light of itself. And that will help you then to read another book of the Bible as you begin to read that one in light of not only itself, but in light of of the other scriptures that you've studied. As we come to the end, what we see is that what began this letter was a gift. And that helps you make sense of a lot of this letter. It doesn't follow pop. Paul's typical MO of theology first and then practical matters related to that flowing from that second. Why is that? Why why is this book full of commands, centers around commands, encompassing commands, general broad stroke commands that speak to the whole of the Christian life? Why is this? Because this Paul was this letter was not occasioned by Paul receiving news of some ethical problem or theological error that had made its way into the Philippian church. This letter was occasioned by a gift coming to Paul. And so Paul writes to say, thank you. This is a thank you letter, but it's not just a thank you letter. And you can see that, that becomes really clear. Paul is now at the end finally saying thank you, And as you read the thank you, you see why the thank you had to come at the end. This ending makes sense of the whole of the letter. You will see all the themes that we have covered in this letter so far rooted in this ending. You'll you'll understand why it is that Paul has spoken the way he has throughout the letter once once you really spend some time with the conclusion. And I hope all this prevents you from making what is, I think, the easiest of mistakes you can make whenever you take up the end of this letter. And that is to think that Paul is stumbling over his thank you. That he he just doesn't quite know how to express it or say it. He's, He's awkward. Well, certainly there is a tension that you sense as you read this conclusion. There's a tension here, but it's not an awkward tension. It's the tension of a string being perfectly strung to strike just the right note. Paul does essentially say with this conclusion, um, thank you. But he manages to say just that kind of qualified, reserved thank you in a manner, in a manner that's profound, eloquent, deep, and not in the least offensive. Three times Paul will express his appreciation. And what builds this tension is those statements of appreciation are followed by an explanation and then a qualification. So that's the pattern. Appreciation, explanation, qualification. And then to top it all off, there's Paul's 
typical expression of, expressions of greetings and grace to close everything out. Now, Paul's first expression of appreciation is for their revived concern, verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. The word you have for revived has a botanical sense, scent to it, really. It has the idea of bringing a plant to bloom again. Their concern for Paul has bloomed once more. Paul will make it clear shortly that their care for him has been perennial. But it's been a long winter. And now at length their concern has bloomed once again. And so, spring having arrived, Paul greatly rejoices that this is so. And it, it's the Philippians, you see, who have, they've revived their concern for Paul. And yet, Paul rejoices in the Lord for this. Why is that? Well, it's simply because the Lord is the Lord. He's sovereign. He rules. More than thanks and praise are due to the Philippians for what has occurred. They are due to God. He's to be rejoiced in. More than this is the Philippians doing, it is the Lord's doing. We're told not only that we're to rejoice in the Lord always, 3, 1, 4, 4, but by this, do you not see that what Paul is conveying there is that you are to rejoice in the Lord preeminently. Paul, Paul's writing this letter to say thank you, but he doesn't just want to say thank you. Thank you. There's something he wants to say louder than that. This letter is an expression not only of his gratitude for the Philippians, more than that is an expression of contentment and delight and joy and satisfaction in Christ. That's the tension that you feel at the conclusion of this letter. Paul wants to say thank you. He wants them to know that He's grateful for them, that He loves them, that He's appreciative. But more than that, He's zealous to rejoice in His Lord. Paul earlier admonished the Philippians, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. 2, 4, and 5. This mind of serving and thinking of others is a mind that they have in Christ, Paul knows that as they're demonstrating the very mind that he calls for there in regards to him, they're demonstrating it because of Christ. Shortly after that, Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. More than this being the Philippians doing... It is God's doing, and so He's due the praise. And so whenever this happens, He doesn't simply thank the Philippians. He rejoices in His Lord. Short, uh, and this recalls Paul's opening Thanksgiving. Hear the same kind of thoughts there. Chapter 1, verses 3 and through 6. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day 
of Jesus Christ. He thanks His God for them and the work that God is doing in them, and especially as it regards to their partnership in the gospel. Don't miss this. Paul rejoices in Christ, yes, but he rejoices in Christ in regard to the Philippians and their gift. C.S. Lewis wrote that there's no good trying to be more spiritual than God. God never meant man to be purely a purely spiritual animal. He likes matter. He invented it. There are some people who try to be so spiritual that the result is that they're not spiritual at all. If you think that rejoicing in the Lord means that you only walk with your head up and never looking around, the result is not that you rejoice in God more. Not that you rejoice in Christ more. You rejoice in Him less for that fact. There's a kind of person who reads verse 11, not that I'm speaking of being in need, And they think that by their indifference to the things of this earth, that they're somehow better, more spiritual. They rejoice in Christ, in Christ alone. Well, you actually fail to rejoice in Christ as fully as you should because He's Lord. He's Lord over every one of those good things. And He's worthy of being rejoiced in because of those good things. The paradox that we'll see here is that Paul's contentment, his joy in Christ, is independent from these things, and yet these things are not irrelevant to Paul's joy in Christ. And I think you'll see more and more how these two things can coincide, how they can coexist, how they can actually meld together, but I think you can, you can get a sense of it just now. Paul rejoices in Christ. And he's content with Christ alone. But as he's rejoicing in the Philippians and their gift, it isn't that he's rejoicing in the Philippians and their gift itself. He's rejoicing in the Lord in those things. The common factor here is Christ In abundance or need, Christ. That's his joy. In explaining why it is that it's now at last, as the New King James has it at length in the ESV, why it's now at last that their concern has bloomed again, Paul quickly adds that it was not because they lacked concern, verse 10, but they lacked opportunity. So no offense was given or I think felt by the Philippians by the words, at length, your concern bloomed again. It's simply a statement of fact. And his, qualific- his explanation coming right on the heels of this makes it clear. He's not meaning to give offense. This is just the, the state of things as they've been. But now you've... you've You not only have concern, you have opportunity, and so it's bloomed again. The Philippians were concerned, but they had no opportunity. Can we not be honest? Say that our problem is so often that we have abundant opportunity. It's concern 
that we lack. We need to be zealous to cultivate concern so that we seize opportunities as they present themselves. How do you cultivate concern? Do you remember Paul prefaced his command for the Philippians to be mindful of one another in this way? If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to speak of that humble mind of Christ demonstrated in his incarnation and his humiliation and his suffering. How do you cultivate concern? Don't look at one another first. Certainly don't look at humanity if you want to cultivate concern. Don't even look at Christianity if you want to cultivate concern. You want to cultivate concern. First, it begins within the renewed people of God as you look around at your shared experience in Christ. If there's any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, look at at the gospel goodness of God around you. And then look to the gospel itself. Look to Christ. His salvation. And look at His people as His people, and it will work its way out from there. And just as quickly, though, as Paul makes this explanation, he offers this qualification, verse 11. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. What's this about? Paul is anxious to let them know he's not anxious. It's not that he didn't appreciate the gift. It's not what he's wanting to say. He rejoices in the Lord for their revived concern, but he wants them to know that his joy is in the Lord always. Paul wants the Philippians to know that he was already singing before their gift came, and he would have been singing had it not. His joy was in Christ. Paul is not in need. It's not that this gift is unnecessary nor unappreciated. It's simply to say Paul is content. He's at peace. This is the same Paul who has told them in 3.8.9, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Paul includes this statement, not that I'm speaking of being in need, not to be rude to the Philippians, but to glory in Christ, because that's what the saints do. Chapter 3 and verse 3, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. By this expression of contentment, Paul 
lives as a heavenly citizen worthy of the gospel of Christ, 1 in verse 27. He demonstrates that his citizenship, his joy, his, 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 his state in which he finds his contentment and peace is rooted in heaven and not on this earth. It's not that the things that happen on earth are, are irrelevant to Paul, but they cannot shake where his peace and joy are anchored. Thomas Watson writes, If there is a blessed life before we come to heaven, it is the contented life. A contented Christian carries heaven with him. For what is heaven but that sweet repose and full contentment that the soul shall have in God? In contentment, there are the first fruits of heaven. But know that this contentment is a learned lesson. Verse 11 again. Paul had to learn contentment. It's something that God works out in us. Contentment means heaven in us. But until we are in heaven, we will not fully have learned this lesson. We will need remedial courses all the days of our life. The Apostle Paul had to learn this lesson. Don't begrudge your school days. Don't grow frustrated with your lessons. One of the first lessons of contentment is to be content with having to learn contentment. Sanctification cannot be downloaded and uploaded onto your system immediately at your pleasure. How are these lessons learned? Life. Life in Christ. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. The way you learn this lesson is in plenty and poverty, abundance and need. Paul speaks of learning just such a lesson in 2 Corinthians 12. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with, my, with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient. For you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions and calamities, for when I am weak, then I am strong. The lifeness of this lesson, do you not sense it in Paul's statement? I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance I have learned. In the circumstance I've learned. In any and every circumstance. Saints, Grace is needed. 
just as much when you have much to be content. Thomas Watson writes, when the fire burns, how do you quench it? Not by pouring oil on the flame or by laying on more wood, but by withdrawing the fuel. When the appetite is inflamed after riches, how may a man be satisfied? Not by having just what he desires, but by withdrawing the fuel. That is by moderating and lessening his desires. He who is contented has enough. For the idolatrous, covetous heart, more does not bring contentment. It fuels covetousness. If our hearts are not content, this is the reality. They are covetous. We want. And if we're breaking that last commandment, you shall not covet. The reality is we're breaking the first commandment. And we have another God. You see, the failure is one to rejoice in the Lord always And the folly of it is that we're not rejoicing in the Lord because we would find satisfaction in some idol that cannot grant satisfaction, thus our discontent. But whatever the situation is that you face, this is a reality. The Lord is the Lord. And if you are His child, your Lord is Lord. And so whatever situation you have, contentment is called for. Contentment, writes Watson again, is the best commentator on providence. It makes a fair interpretation of all God's dealings. You want to comment on whatever it is that's before you in life? Here's the best commentary you can offer, Watson says, with your life. Contentment. Contentment says... Naked, I came from my mother's womb. Naked, I shall I return. Yahweh gave, Yahweh is taken away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. That's the way contentment comments on the providence of God. The reason Paul says he can be content, plenty and hunger, abundance and need, is that he's learned a secret. What is the secret? I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. He's learned that God's grace in Christ is sufficient. It's all he needs. If an athlete wants to plaster this on their person in some way, or proclaim it during some interview, I'm totally fine with that. As long as he can say, He's found strength in Christ to accept both victory and defeat with joy and peace, whatever the outcome. Let him speak of being strengthened to play in his prime with humility and strengthened to fade from the spotlight with dignity. And then I'll believe he's read a few more verses other than 13 all by itself. The secret that Paul is speaking of here is not one for success. 
The secret Paul is speaking of here is one for contentment. Be your experience one of success or failure, a promotion or the loss of a job, sickness or health, the birth of a new one or the death of a loved one. The point of this verse is not how you can achieve your goals. That's not, a, that's not the kind of secret being disclosed here. This is a secret of how you may accept God's holy and good providence. Should it sting or should it be sweet to receive them both with a kind of heavenly poise, to live as a heavenly citizen worthy of the gospel of Christ, whatever His providence should arrange before you. Now the word contentment that you have here all by itself, just the word, suggests the pagan stoic notion of self-reliance, self-dependence, self-sufficiency, independence. But the word isn't all by itself. And so Paul flips the natural meaning of this word here upside down. Paul's contentment is independent from his state, but is not independent from his Savior. His contentment is Christ-dependent. Paul finds contentment through Christ and in Christ. In one sense, this is what contentment is. I desperately need. And I must have. But Christ is mine. And He's all I need. Lloyd-Jones preaching on these verses said, It is a statement that is characterized at one and the same time by a sense of triumph and humility. Paul sounds at first as if he is boasting, and yet when you look at the statement again, you find that it is one of the most glorious and striking tributes that he's ever paid anywhere to his Lord and Master. The problem with, with the way this verse is so often put forward is it's completely emptying, emptied of the Christ-obsessed boasting that it has here. And it all centers around self and idols instead. Too many, when they quote this verse, it is all boasting. It's all triumph. There is no element of humility. It's the pagan Stoic notion of Henley's Invictus. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I think whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds me and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. No, Paul says, Christ is the captain, is the master of my life. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Christ is the captain of my soul. I am sure that he who began a good work in me will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. In contrast to Henley's Invictus, 
Listen to Wesley's Thou Hidden Source of Calm Repose. Thou Hidden Source of Calm Repose, Thou All-Sufficient Love Divine, My Help and Refuge from My Pose, Secure I am if Thou art Mine. And lo, from sin and grief and shame, I hide me, Jesus, in Thy name. Thy mighty name salvation is, and keeps my happy soul above. Comfort it brings, and power and peace and joy and everlasting love. To me, with Thy dear name, are given pardon and holiness and heaven. Jesus, my all in all Thou art, my rest in toil, my ease in pain, the medicine of my broken heart. In war, my peace, in loss, my gain, my shame, my smile beneath the, the tyrant's frown. In shame, my glory and my crown. In want, my plentiful supply. In weakness, my almighty power. In bonds, my perfect liberty. My light in Satan's dark hour. My help and stay whene'er I call. My life and death, my heaven, my all. This is the secret of contentment. Joy in Christ, through Christ. Christ dependence and Christ sufficiency. Desperately needed grace and absolutely certain grace. Need as deep as the ocean and supply as vast as the cosmos. Next appreciation, expression of appreciation is an acknowledgement of their kindness to him in sharing his trouble, verse 14. What does it mean that they shared in his trouble? You begin to make way whenever you realize that sharing in his trouble is the same thing as their concern blooming for him, is the same thing as this gift that has abundantly supplied his need. He's thanking them expressing appreciation for the same thing each of these times. So the Philippians and Paul are in gospel partnership so that they share in his trouble because they have a share, as it were, in Paul. The gospel in which they've partnered has brought trouble to Paul and trouble to them. Philippians 1, 29-30, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. But I think there's a more direct correlation between while why their giving this gift to Paul is a sharing in his trouble. You can make some sense of it, by their giving in regards to another need. When Paul writes of the generosity of the Macedonians in his letter to the Corinthians, remember, Philippi is in Macedonia. And as you're reading his testimony here, Macedonia really means chiefly Philippi. And concerning those gifts that were taken up for the needy saints in Jerusalem, he writes to them, 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 5, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, 
their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Their joy and their poverty mixed together and overflowed in generosity. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. I think it's plain by this letter that they give to Paul in the same manner. Whenever Paul is hurting they voluntarily bring on a small degree of hurt to themselves so that they might aid and help their brother. So that his trouble becomes their trouble. As for his explanation in this expression, he recalls their personal history. Whenever he left Macedonia, no other church entered into partnership with him in giving and receiving just them. Paul writes to the Corinthians about this as well. I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. 2 Corinthians 11, 8 and 9. Joyous giving in gospel partnership is as rare as gospel contentment. It's as rare and as beautiful. And is it not for this reason? That kind of gospel giving is rooted in contentment. Why is gospel giving like this so rare, as rare as contentment? Well, because the one stems from the other. It's the soul content in Christ that's freed to give. If you are Happy, but hoarding, you are not content. Contentment means liberty for liberality. You do not have your wealth, your wealth has you. Gospel partnership means giving and receiving. So they've given financially and perhaps materially, to support Paul in his need. What have they received? What do they get out of this deal? I think more will become plain, but this, I think, is apparent just at first glance. If they share in Paul's toil, will they not share in the fruits of that toil? Saints, it is a joy to partner with the Lingles. What have we received out of, what is it, seven years now? What have we received? There are saints in Thailand. There's a church in Bangkok. And we have a share in that. We've given so little. And look at how much we've received. True wealth that will redound to all eternity. We've given pennies that fade. And we've received 
the wealth. Not, and, and it's just dumbfounding how little what we do and, and how magnificent what God has done. We receive a share in really what's all God's work eternally. It's a grace to partner in the gospel of grace. When Brandon was ready to publish his parenting book, one family among us gave directly for that need. Praise be to God for their giving. But can you imagine a father having read that book Having been discipled himself, now discipling his children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And then their children doing the same for their children. I praise God for that family, for what they gave. Oh, but what they will receive. Joy and contentment in Christ in regard to gospel partnership means having our eyes on the massive heaps that we receive rather than the little bits that we give. Paul quickly qualifies this by adding, it's not that I'm seeking a gift. Verse 17, I don't seek the gift. Sometimes when people say thank you, you really get the sense that they're saying More, please. And Paul wants to make it clear that he wants wants to express by this not greed. He wants to express contentment. Contentment in Christ, not greed for gifts. Joy in the Lord, not joy in His provisions. See, what Paul is seeking here is not a gift. What he is seeking is is fruit increasing for their credit. He's zealous concerning their giving, not for his receiving, but for their receiving. Now, I don't know that this fruit that Paul speaks of in verse 17, that increases to their credit, I don't know that this fruit is completely identical to the receiving Paul spoke of earlier, but there's certainly overlap. One includes the other. Part of what they receive in their giving is this fruit. So here's the astounding thing is that God gives and then He gives credit whenever we give what He's given and He even gives the giving. This is not giving that merits This is grace giving. It's grace watered by grace causing grace to bloom upon which God then pours out more grace. And then finally Paul expresses appreciation by a couple of phrases that communicate communicate not just the adequacy of their gift but the abundance of it to supply his needs. Verse 18 I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied. And just as Paul wanted to frame his receiving of this gift in terms of worship, I rejoice in the Lord greatly. Now he wants to frame their giving of this gift in terms of worship. 
Paul's not wanting to slight their giving by his rejoicing in Christ any more than he would be offended by their saying, listen, Paul, we love you, but we did it for the sake of Christ. You're receiving, you've just put in terms of worship, and that thrills our hearts because our giving was in terms of worship. I received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Both giving and contentment are expressions of worship. And when either is lacking, the other will be as well. And the answer for that is that a false god is being worshipped. And following this description of their giving as an act of worship, it's fitting then that instead of an explanation, Paul deviates from the pattern and instead we have a promise. God will supply every need of theirs according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. You cannot outgive God. You can only give what He has given. And when you righteously give, especially when you righteously give in gospel partnership, the harvest will always exceed your labor, your sowing. Jesus promised Peter, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. And you say, yes, yep, there's the catch. In this time, yeah, it says that, but whenever he says the age to come, I understand that means ultimately the fullness of all this means I got to die first. What about right now? This is the folly of living for the dot rather than the line. Randy Alcorn says, your life is a dot. And following from that for eternity is a line. He writes, right now we are living in the dot. But what are you living for? The short-sighted person lives for the dot. The person with, per- with perspective lives for the line. Live for the line. But Jesus also promised, as Paul does here, that God will provide our every need. Jesus told us, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. And you say, yes, but what about what Paul says right here? He's in prison. What about being brought low? What about being in hunger? What about being in need? What about the martyrs? What about the prophets? What about Job? What about Jesus? Saints, remember what Paul has just told us. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. And what that means is finding contentment, whatever the state, because you found all you need. All you need in that moment is in Christ and whatever He's put before you. 
But in general, there's a promise here so that we, we can say in general with the psalmist, I have been young and now I'm old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously and his children become a blessing. But should God arrange hard times and you will live through them because you are a pilgrim and an exile, a heavenly citizen on foreign soil, soon to be renovated and declared new in your inheritance, but at this time under enemy occupation. Should providence arrange hard times, you can be certain of soft grace, comforting grace. Why can you be certain? Because He will draw, withdraw your every need from the treasury of Christ. God will supply every need of yours according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. You say, I don't doubt that that treasury is abundant and full. What I doubt is will withdrawals be made for me and my need? Recognize that the nature of the treasury itself speaks to the fact that everything you need will be withdrawn from that treasury. How is that? Romans 8 tells us, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? The treasury is Christ. And if you've been given Christ, every promise is yes and amen in Christ. Every good thing that God gives is in Christ. If He's given you Christ, it testifies to the fact that everything you need, you can be certain of. There will be no lack. Everything you need is in Christ. And you can be certain that your loving Heavenly Father will make every withdrawal for your need. And so with the things progressing as they are, you can see why explanation was replaced with a promise and now why qualification is replaced with doxology. To our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. And then echoing the themes of unity and love and humility, Paul calls for them to greet every saint. And then goes on to say that all the saints greet them. And then we have Paul's typical terse benediction. It's terse and it's typical, but as we put it in its context, it speaks volumes and it speaks uniquely. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This benediction is the realization of the promise made in verse 19. God will supply every need of yours according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And now the apostle of Jesus Christ addresses the people of God and says the grace, that very grace that you need, that grace in which you find your peace and contentment, that grace that strengthens you so that you rejoice in the Lord always. Be with your spirit. 
Paul is not awkwardly stumbled in trying to say thank you. He's transposed those simple words, thank you, into the higher key of heavenly praise. Praise be to God. And he's brought the Philippians along with him to join in the chorus so that they sing, To God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. May you be brought into that chorus. And to that end, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirits. And knowing that that grace is with us in Christ, knowing that we cannot empty that treasury no matter how deep our needs, knowing that God has given us Himself in His Son, can we not now also count all things as lost for the joy of knowing Christ? Christ is our contentment. If we lose our contentment, we've forgotten our Christ but we've gathered to be reminded of Him by the Word again today. And having been reminded, I pray you found this very grace. You found strength. You found a kind of freedom to give. To give of yourselves in every way, in gospel partnership, knowing that you cannot outgive your God who's given you Himself and His Son. And so again, I tell you, my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To God, to our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, dear ones, be with you your spirits. Let's pray. Holy Father, praise be to you. How vast and immeasurable the treasury of Christ from which you supply our every need. Father, you have made full payment. Christ has made full payment and more. In Him we are well supplied. Having received this gift you sent. Father forgive us. Grant grace. For the cause of Christ. For the glory of Christ. Content in Him, rejoicing in Him, facing whatever Your good hands have laid before us. Abundance or need, 
plenty or hunger, being brought low or abounding, finding strength in Christ to rest in Christ. In His name we ask this. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. Please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com.